Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of magic gathering. Signal Pest, Gingerbrute, Glow Rider, and many others. Battling head to head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common to uphold their legacy in the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by The Minds Behind, Bosch and Raw on YouTube, The Raven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by ScrollRack.app and Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and more at ToaMagic.com. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Eternal Glory podcast, Minsk and you. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week available in our Patreon exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternal glory to gain access. I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I'm Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Gentlemen, how's everyone doing tonight? Hanging in there. We we, we went a little long on the Patreon pre-show. We put some stank on it this week. It was closer to 40 minutes than 30, but I think it was a good chat. Talked about a lot of fun stuff. And uh, congrats to Lucas, our newest Patreon subscriber, who's going to hear that. Maybe you're next, you, listener, right now. Go click that thing. It keeps us on the air. Appreciate it. All right, so we're going to just kind of jump directly into things tonight. Um, So for those of you out of the loop, Magic Online not only has a new set release, but many of the cards that weren't on Magic Online now have been released on Magic Online. So we're going to highlight some of these cards that are having a good impact on Legacy or could have a big impact, um, as well as talking a little bit of theory about the initiative mechanic. So uh, let's start with everyone's favorite hamster-wielding planeswalker, Minsk and Boo. Brian, you want to read this one for us? Yes, here is the text of this card. It's two red-green, four mana total, legendary planeswalker-Minsk. When Minsk and Boo Timeless Heroes enters the battlefield and at the beginning of your upkeep, you may create Boo a legendary 1-1 red hamster creature with trample and haste. So that happens, that's a static ability that creates a triggered ability. When it enters the battlefield and each upkeep, if there's no hamster, you get a hamster. Then plus one, put three plus one plus one counters on up to one target creature with trample or haste. Luckily, you just made one of those with your Minsk and Boo. And minus two, sacrifice a creature. When you do, Minsk and Boo, Timeless Heroes deals X damage to any target, where X is that creature's power. If the sacrificed creature was a hamster, draw X cards, and starting loyalty is 3. Don't forget, it can also be your commander! It can be your commander, which uh, does not apply to our legacy audience, but hopefully we got some EDH fans out there too. It, it can do that as well. I've heard some crazy, like, conspiracy theories that Wizards wants Planeswalkers to be default, have the ability to be commanders, so they just, like, tack it on to a lot of them now. I don't know how true that is, but I don't know. Sort of makes uh, sense. That That is one of the, the regular EDH community discourse things that resurfaces every couple months on Twitter. It's like, uh, when they made the rule that made all Planeswalkers legendary permanence, rather than, like, the Planeswalker rule being a standalone different thing from the legend rule, it's, uh, a lot of people were like, oh, cool, they can be commanders now. And the commander rules committee was like, no, that's not what that means. And it's it's along with like hybrid mana and band soul ring as just like hot topics that people who know better don't talk about. I'm sorry to open that can of worms. 
I look at this card and I think, man, this is going to like fit right into my Applejack's deck. You know, I'm going to put this in with, uh, you know, my my veteran explorers. I'm going to sacrifice, um, you know, is, is this the clear home for this card in Legacy? No, it's a control card. It says draw cards, Phil. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's not blue and it draws cards and it's going to slot into all of our blue control decks. Yeah, this this reminds me of Endurance in a lot of ways where it's like, oh, this is a powerful green card. But in fact, you can cast it off dual lands, including Volcanic Island and Tropical Island. For those of you who have been out playing Paper Magic for the last couple months, you might have felt the caught the the spiny little hands of hamster of Boo the Hamster at the LGS. And this might be old hat to you, but for the people who primarily play on Magic Online, there haven't been that many paper tournaments. So if you just look at tournament results... You might not have seen a lot of Boo. If you just consume online content, you w- will not have seen this card until very recently. It's as good as advertised. Like, this thing does not get pyroblasted and does win the game on its own very quickly. Yeah, so this, it just so you can conceptualize this, you have a 1 1 that you put three counters on. That's four damage. The next turn, you do it again. That's seven damage. The next turn, it's up to 10. So, like, this is basically a three turn clock. In, in your formats that like also have some other incidental damage like thought seizes and fetch lands and stuff. And that's just completely ignoring the minus ability. Right. Which you can sacrifice any creature. It does not have to be a hamster. You just get to draw cards if it happens to be one. Are there any other large creatures in Legacy that you'd want to sacrifice? I have seen this card alongside Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, more than once. That's a, a thing that's going on. And credit to Max Dorshin, who has been working on what he calls like rug broken pile or like rug design mistakes, design mistakes, tribal. Like there's been a lot of names kicking around and it's just like Merktide Regent, Dragon's Rage Channeler, Brainstorm, Force of Will, Minsk and Boo, Maddening Hex, all these cards just in the main deck piling on and smearing other blue decks. Minsk and Boo, uh, that's also an Uro deck. So you uh, make the hamster attack for four and then attack for four again and then bring Uro back and yeet it at your opponent and they're dead probably. Because it's also a Lightning Bolt deck, and Dragon's Rage Channeler rarely dies without doing some damage. It, that's just a crazy thing. And Max has innovated it further into a Phyrexian Dreadnought deck. And that's a big one to sacrifice. Oh, that's uh, that's cute. It is indeed. So what's the Dreadnought enabler there? Because I remember seeing the tweet, but I don't remember what was the support. He's had a number of different lists go up, but uh, I'm pretty sure Stifle and Dressdown are the, are the plans. I think uh, I was trying to set you up for the T-ball here, but normally I think we see Minsk and Boo alongside the card Dark Depths. It's a pretty good uh, fling in those matchups. So Naya Depths has been picking up a lot. Yeah, Naya was already the color of Depths. I think that like six months ago, it was usually green, white, or Selesnia, whatever you prefer to call it. And over the last five months-ish, People have been adding in Pyroblast because it kills Murktide region, and Minsk and Boo sort of just solidified the requirement for playing red. It's no longer green-white depths. It is just Naya depths. Yeah, they were splashing red blast into the green-white depth shell just because they weren't beating Delver hard enough, I guess. And some <laughs> some mess around with like Punishing Fire stuff, some don't. Just Minsk and Boo hanging out next to Knight of the Reliquary. <laughs> Notable chonky boy, Knight of the Reliquary. That is, uh, and that card's regularly like seven, seven, eight, eight. Just attack, then whip it, and the game's probably over. You don't even need to make Dark Depths. A lot of powerful stuff going on with Minsk and Boo. Uh, just chucking a Tarmogoyf. Just this, this is like Lava Axe. 
even if it does nothing else, it's make a one, one and cast lava ax in just like the bottom end. If you were just like that facetious joke we were making about like, Oh, a red green card that might make red green good. Like what if it was, what if you're just like goblin guide or like, uh, I was about to say Ragavan. I've been playing a lot of modern. We don't get that one in legacy, but like if you're, if you're just like goblin guide, Tarmogoyf, endurance, Minsk and boo, you're dead. Here's all these creatures. And one of the things I think is interesting about Minsk and boo is that, you don't get to know what the clock is anymore. And that's a big thing about the Naya depth stacks is you always knew when you were going to die because Naya, they're not going to kill you at instant speed. Traditionally, they don't play fling effects. So, you know, unless they have like a surprise end step crop rotation, you had a pretty good idea of when you were going to be dead. And like Brian mentioned, now an attack with Knight of the Reliquary could mean that you're dead out of nowhere. And I think that adds a very different aspect to the deck just because you're going to be forced to do things before you wanted to do them previously. Yeah, that that's a completely flip of the script. Uh, I played against uh, Dan Neely earlier today in a league, a known Mox Diamond enthusiast. Dan. The legend. Yeah, and uh, he was on a depth deck and I was doing all that math, like the math you could do a week ago where I was just like, okay, four mana, this is crop rotation into depths in the end step if I'm not careful. And I did not get punished by Minskin Boo, spoilers for that video that came out three days ago. It, it it was not something that was on my calculation radar the way that it should be because it's so new. And the thing that Brian just said where you don't get to plan out exactly what they're capable of anymore because they have this big wild card. Uh, I was not thinking about it and it would have got me if it was there. So something that we talked about, I don't know, maybe a year or more ago, like when uh, Uro and Oko were first coming out, like we talked a lot about how valuable incidental life gain was. Incidental haste is really good. Like when you get to change that clock by a turn and you don't give your opponent a chance to cast their prismatic ending, you don't give them a chance to fairy bounce something, That that is game warping levels of good in some cases. A lot of times the things that have haste in Legacy are like, one one goblin tokens and that's not super impactful but like when you have a four four haster that comes down for four mana like that fucks up boards that gets people dead that kills the planeswalkers that were stabilizing the game there is some setup required this is kind of there is some like attempt to balance this thing it's not just like all upside your plus has to go on a creature with trampler haste and then the minus can be anything, but you only draw if it's a hamster. So it wants you to use Boo for all of it, but it rewards you for deck building with other ha- trample haste creatures like Phyrexian Dreadnought and other big creatures like Uro or Murktide Regent. Good luck out there. <laughs> I forgot to mention that one in my list of big creatures in Legacy. Yikes. Minsk and Boo is something that maybe will occupy slots previously um, held by... Things like maybe Paradox Zone that were uh, meant to be kind of like mirror breakers. And this is meant to be a a mirror breaker in many cases as well, because like it is just going to avoid these pyroblasts that are often even being main decked. Like Brian, as as our control mage, you know, how are you looking to fight this? I think the answer is obvious, but let's hear it. Well, there are a few answers. The most obvious one is Hydroblast which hits both Minsk and Boo and the other card we're going to talk about, Maddening Hex. I packed one Hydroblast in SCG Baltimore and in the the tournament I played last weekend, uh, a little local one. It was not enough. It was like the best card. Uh, I got eliminated from my uh, local event by Alex Bastecki on Rug Stupid Cards with Hex 
main deck game one. He just hexed me, and I played from ahead for a while, tried not to cast any spells for a while, but it eventually got me. And then game two, I had the red, the blue blast for Minsk and Boo, and I was able to stabilize. And game three, I had to try a force of will because I couldn't find my Hydra blast. I came home and added another blue blast to the deck right away. That's like a very easy level zero response to this thing. We could take a lesson here from Poppers. Well, a lot of the times people board in a bunch of pyroblasts in order to beat fairies and the pyroblasts or the fairy stacks by default just board in hydroblasts to stop the pyroblasts. With blue being so dominant right now in Legacy, you could even do that in the isn't mirrors just because everybody's boarding six pyroblasts from Urktide Regent. Pyroblasts or Hydroblast is the natural predator of Pyroblast, so going up on them is naturally good. There's also Dragon's Rage Channeler. I think Hydroblast is still being slept on. Hydroblast still counters EI, too. Yep. Goblin Rabble Master and Chandra Tortured Defiance and Fable the Mirror Breaker. Burning uh, like, Wish? Con- yeah, Burning Wish. Uh, there's the a lot of the top end of the the format right now is susceptible to hydroblast. I've been packing one for a few months and I think two is probably the right number depending on what else you've got going on in the deck. Like I made an innovation to shark still that I mentioned in the, the Patreon pre-show that I'm not going to reiterate here. Go pay for your, your information. Uh, but I made a change that respects Minsk and boo and maddening hex in the main deck. That means I, I might not need to hydroblast anymore, which is pretty nice. So Respect this card, whether it's coming out of the side or the main, because these are going to be in main decks and like two hydras in the sideboard is not necessarily the solution that like you can't treat control mirrors like dredge where it's like, oh, I'll just lose game one. Then win the sideboard games, because they also get a sideboard, you can't be just shields down to these potent red cards in game one because they are coming. So the other thing that I want to say in favor of Hydroblast is goblins got a major upgrade as well with its new two mana lord that plays just so very well with like skark prospector and friends like i don't know how many new players are going to pick up goblins but i'm very much scared of the players who already know how to play goblins so i'd like to rewind back to a point when brian was reading the card when Minsk and Boo, Timeless Heroes, enters the battlefield and at the beginning of your upkeep, you may create Boo, a legendary 1-1 red creature token, with Trample and Haste. It's When it enters the battlefield, it creates a trigger. You're allowed yep. to respond to triggers. This Planeswalker has three loyalty. What deals three damage in Legacy? Yeah, what can we do at instant speed for three damage? Uh, obviously, we're talking about Lightning Bolt. Minsk and Boo does have built-in weakness to Lightning Bolt. Most Planeswalkers arrive and their controller immediately has priority to activate the plus one and get out of bolt range like the old jace the mind sculptor solution in bolt matchups this creates a trigger which creates a round of priority where instance can be cast minsk and boo uh, i know that uh harlan fear was not boarding minsk and boo in against delver in his uh top four maybe finals run of the team scg baltimore he had this really cool delver slayer four color control deck with carpet of flowers and Minsk and boo and stuff. But Minsk was not for the Delver matchup because you can't just have your four drop die to bolt. So that's a consideration. The big thing, another big piece of text there is boo is a legendary one, one red hamster creature token. You can let the create boo trigger resolve each upkeep and then bounce boo with Caracas and your opponent starts each main phase with a, Minsk and Boo Timeless Heroes Planeswalker, but no hamster to gas up. So they need to also be packing Wasteland or some answer 
or other creatures to spread the love around, or Karak is just hard answers, Minsk and Boo straight up, without a, a third party involved. So those are, like, Lightning Bolt and Karakas are the cleanest main deck answers, and then, you know, it, once it resolves, like, counterspells, uh, Force of Will still hits this thing, but expect Pyroblast in any deck with this, and good players are going to jockey to a position where they have five or six mana, and they're able to back it up with a Pyroblast. They're not just going to tap out for this thing. Because it, this is the... This is like show and tell or like Oko or some really potent thing where it's worth dancing the game around. Uh, it's not you don't throw this into force of will. This will carry the game by itself and treat it as such. That was going to be one of my points, Brian, is this is a four mana planeswalker. Traditionally, with four mana planeswalkers in Legacy, days is a big concern, which is something we haven't even addressed yet. So I can see why Harlan decided to not keep it in against the Lightning Bolt days deck. The the presence of Minsk and Boo also may create some interest in Spell Pierce, which is a card largely forgotten in the Legacy metagame in favor of more potent Flusterstorm or Pyroblast, uh, which hit most of the things that you'd want to Spell Pierce. But uh, all the control decks are on Narset. They're on Teferi. Minsk and Boo is in there too. Maddening Hex. It might be time for Spell Pierce to, to revisit, depending on how fast your deck is. Like, it's not going to work in a deck that's trying to play a 12-turn game because your opponent's going to get out of reach Spell Pierce eventually uh, by by design of your deck. So be careful with that. But if you're anything lower to the ground or mid-range, like uh, like a Stoneforge Mystic deck, like Blue Stoneblade of some kind, uh, maybe consider Spell Pierce over a comparable card like Flusterstorm. While we're talking about some counterplay here, I don't know how well this is going to line up versus some of the more mid-rangey decks in the format. Um, so like like let's take something slightly more controlling like say death and taxes like death and taxes is going to have caracas and flicker wisp to answer these germ creatures it's going to have skyclaves that can cleanly answer minsk and boo um so i don't know that this card is going to be generically good everywhere because like there are going to be really strong answers to it but this game is going this card is going to snowball hard when it does work I just don't know that it always works because of like some of the lightning bolt and other interaction problems. Right. This is very much a solution for blue mirrors in, in these blue soup decks with three or four colors. It's a, an answer to the inbred pyroblast versus murktide region and planeswalkers metagame that we've been sort of chilling in. And it flips that on its head, but it's not good against red prison or the death and taxes. Like Phil just said, or, you know, the epic storm, nice four drop that creates a four four who cares uh there's a lot of spots this is pretty bad and and you'll see it as like probably a one in the main one in the side is sort of the the distribution i've seen settling into control decks that can cast it where you don't want to draw two and sometimes you don't even want to and sometimes you board it out completely if they have lightning bolt so it's not it's not like some bs it's just like a powerful card at an appropriate legacy power level that attacks the existing format in a very interesting way well should we take that as a point to pivot into maddening hex then yeah let's do it all right i'll read this one so this is uh, an enchantment or a curse for one and two red enchant player whenever enchanted player casts a non-creature spell roll a d6 that is a six-sided die maddening hex deals damage to that player equal to the result then attach Maddening Hex to another one of your opponents chosen at random. So, talking about this, this card is sweet. Nope. So, 
<laughs> I hate strongly this card so disagree. Much. <laughs> yeah, as as the resident like prison stacks player, uh, this is absolutely my jam. Um, this card can see play in a lot of places. Um, let's start with the big dog of the format. Let's start with blue red Delver. I have been seeing this in like some blue red Delver sideboards as just like a potent piece of reach that also kind of serves as a hate card for combos. Have you all seen this uh, pop off yet? I actually faced it in the Star City Games Syracuse top four. I faced Brady Monroe, Brian's friend that you might have heard about if you're, you know, a member of the Patreon. So if you're not, go sign up for that. But I faced Brady and Brady had Maddening Hex was my first time seeing it. And I was like, oh, wow, this card's like kind of busted and then brady proceeded to roll two sixes in a row against me i was just like this isn't fun so i ended up winning the game that brady didn't have it which was nice but uh when the blue red delver deck does get up the three lands and cast it it's pretty terrifying out of the deck with dragon's rage channeler and delver of secrets just because the damage adds up very quickly yeah and the damage adds up quickly even without delver of secrets and dragon's rage channeler I mentioned my match against Alex Bastecki where he eliminated me. I was on Shark still in game one Maddening Hex. Don't have a Hydro Blast, didn't have a Force ready, didn't have a Prismatic Ending ready. And it was just like, here's this thing. Like, okay, I'm at like 16. If you cast the Prismatic Ending, roll the dice, take your your 3.5 damage or whatever it is on average, which is, this is like on average 50% better than Eidolon of the Great Rebel. And that's a card I lose to a lot. <laughs> it's just... Uh, and it does not care about the mana value of the spell. If it's a non-creature, you're you're taking the roll. Alex played this thing. You take your your roll worth of damage for casting your answer to it once it resolves, and then after you take your your one to six damage, then they can start fighting over it with counter spells. And if you counter back, you take another one to six damage. And maybe you win that counter war, but you took six, and maybe you lose the counter war and you took six, and it's still there. This thing sucks. And until you like really sit across from it and like really see those dice roll, it's it, it might be difficult to understand. Um, I didn't know this card existed uh, at first, and I heard somebody like whispering about it. Uh, this was like a month ago, maybe more. Whenever the the new set came out, I read it and I was like, "We're rolling dice in constructed magic now." I don't think so. But then I thought about like where die rolls actually land, and just. A middling die roll dealing three, doing one more damage than Eidolon does. I was like, oh, I get it. And I was texting Alex about this. He's the one who brought it to my attention. And I was like, okay, I'm sold. I just bought four of them. And he was like, that seems excessive. But guess what, nerd? It's a $17 card now. I paid $4 each. This thing is is worth it. This is going to be a card that we see in Legacy for a very long time. Let's talk about a different kind of cost. It costs three. Traditionally... In Delver decks, three mana was the top of the curve because they would peek out at Oko or pretty much just Oko, like maybe true name, but the decks didn't normally go above three, right? Like three was the cutoff. Well, with Maddening Hex, people, when I was initially discussing it with them, were like, yeah, well, when Delver hits three lands, I'm sure the two of you have noticed this. They always hit three lands now. And the reason why is they're building towards Mystic Sanctuary. They're playing more lands than they've ever played before. Delver hitting three lands should be happening on curve, especially in their deck with Mishra's Bobble, Ponder, and Brainstorm. I think that you shouldn't say when Delver hits three lands, because it should just 
happen on turn three, the way that the deck is currently constructed. So don't bank on your opponent being mana screwed. I don't think that's a realistic expectation anymore. Yeah, so I think this is really, really important because like old, by this I mean like probably four plus years ago, like old heuristics were often like, if the Delver player leads on Delver on turn one, like you can wasteland them and 50% of the time they're like not going to find another land and like you have just won the game by doing that. And now, like, if I have a Wasteland against Delver, I'm like, I don't know if I can ever use this card in this matchup because, like, my mana is just so important to me and they will dig out and find new lands. Like, between the Bobbles and EIs, like, that Wasteland, like, stopping one of their land drops is not stopping their game like it used to. Yeah, they're playing the same 19 lands they have been for years, but it feels like 25. Every time I've popped a cheeky little Wasteland at a Delver player... It's gone wrong. I just don't even do it anymore. I just put it into play and it taps to pay for days. That's Wasteland's job in the matchup. If they actually miss a land drop and don't add to the board, maybe I'll consider making a move at that point. But if there's still game to play, if I might want to cast a spell at some point in the near future, I'm not wasting Delver. So it's interesting. We're talking about this card in the context of Blue Red Delver. There's a deck that naturally seems like a great fit for it. And people are going to assume I'm being disingenuous here or trying to make a joke and I'm not. I have not seen a burn deck in Legacy trying to play this alongside Eidolon of the Great Revel. There's other effects that you could play. There's another curse like Maddening Hex that costs two and it always deals two damage. This isn't super unique, but this is by far the most powerful of those effects. If everyone is trying to win these longer blue matchups... And I'm not trying to like make a joke here saying people should switch to burn, but burn actually seems more reasonable than it has in a long time as a budget option. The counter argument is always like, yeah, well, you would recommend that as the storm player. I can't ever beat mind break trap. That's been known information for multiple years. Throw four mind breaks in your board and then beat all the fair blue decks with your maddening hex. It seems like a very realistic thing. But there's this stigma around playing burn when burn just got a huge upgrade. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I'm not a burn expert. I am concerned about like, like I know there are expectations of output of damage per mana spent where lightning bolt being the baseline of one mana gets you three damage. And for two mana, it better be something like Eidolon that's going to get you like two damage and a spell out of their hand or four plus damage. And Maddening Hex costing three and doing zero until your opponent plays into it which of course burn puts the the gas on and they will eventually have to play into it if like your goblin guides are stuck behind like murktide regent which is a creature and does not trigger maddening hex i'd rather just have a burn spell to finish off over the top like i feel like this could go wrong it like introduces variance into a deck that's really trying to play as many copies of the same card as possible. And I, I, I don't know. That's how I feel about it. So my issue here is that I feel like this competes with Roiling Vortex uh, and like having some number of Roiling vo- Vortex and Sulfuric Vortex was basically the only way that you could ever hope to beat Uro. So like while this is a higher damage output card, it also like requires more land meaning it plays worse with fire blasts and it means that like you would not be like pre-boarded versus the uro which is the thing that beats you in those matchups anyway so like i'm on board with this being an upgrade for burn but 
I don't know if it's main side or like how that actually shakes out in practice. When I meant, when I recommended it, I was thinking of the spell mastery card. I can't think of the, uh, exquisite, exquisite firecraft. firecraft. Yeah, uh, this is a replacement for that in my eyes, which I still see sometimes in lists. It's like not super popular ever more anymore since do uh, the roiling vortex that you mentioned, but I still see it occasionally. And maddening hex, I think, is just a no brainer. Yes, it can be dazed or counterspelled or whatever, but I think that one of the issues with burn is your opponent turns the corner, they play the Uro or whatever, like you mentioned. Well, Maddening Hex is worth more. I I think that the three mana spent is actually worth more. Like, you will get more damage for that three mana than you would other cards that cost three. Like, it will deal more than four damage compared to Exquisite Firecraft. I'm, I'm becoming a little bit rambly, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. I, I believe this is a powerful card. I believe burn players will play it. It I guess it, the question is, is it solving any problems that burn needs solved? As far as just like a mana spent versus damage it's likely to do equation it probably clears the bar but how many slots does it get and if uro is part of your metagame maddening hex does not respect uro at all it just is a creature gains life pulls you away and punches through without impacting the board so uh, i i do yeah it's it's what phil said like where where does it go and what problems does it solve and if if there's answers, if there's affirmative answers to those two questions, we're going to see it. All right. So I just checked the front of MTG Goldfish. There is exactly one out of 12 decks that plays it, and it is 4.9% of the metagame. This is not a hard number. This is Goldfish. This is the data we have. Take it with a grain of salt. But roughly 5% of the metagame, I think you can say I will be slightly weaker against the Uro decks that do exist in order to be slightly better against Jeskai Control, for example, which is a higher percentage. Without playing Burn more, like, I don't have the information to know, like, how good the Jeskai Control matchup is in the first place. Um, So I think this is the point where I kind of tap out and just, like, point people to the Burn Discord. Um, They've been very receptive to me when I've come in with questions in the past, like, if you want to go deep down this rabbit hole, there's probably people talking about this there already who have like more hands-on experience than we do. Very fair. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I imagine Burn would be good against Jeskai Control, though, because Delver's role in that matchup is to become a Burn deck, and Burn is just already a Burn deck. So, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, we, we've reached the limit of my expertise on Burn as well, but I know that beating Jeskai with Delver usually becomes about direct damage. Let's talk about how to fight it. What is the what are the best ways of dealing with maddening hex? We've already said the most obvious one in this podcast. So the obvious is hydroblast. I'll do the non-obvious. The non-obvious is just kill your fucking opponent, folks. Whoa. Have have your Merktide Regent in play. Have your Uro in play. Have your win condition on board before this thing comes down and just coast. If I may, in a very uh completely uh self-absorbed way suggest maybe try winning without casting spells uh sharks shark typhoon timeless dragon urza saga currency converter oh baby like sign me up for some of that action uh not that every deck's capable of winning a game without casting spells but maddening hex only cares about non-creature spells if your deck has a bunch of creatures there you go if your deck has like Land drop, land drop, land drop, make Merit Lage. 
Not a single point is taken from Maddening Hex in that exchange. Uh, Phil mentioned Murktide, Uro. Those are pretty good cards, I've heard. Uh, I'm throwing out Timeless Dragon, which not everyone's as deep as me on the standstill side of the world, but every white control deck is on Timeless Dragon these days. Like You can get a 4-4 into play without casting a spell. And if your opponent can't follow up their hex, you're going to do okay with it. So all of those are there. Uh, Prismatic Ending, we mentioned that before in the earlier section. Much easier to end a hex than it is a Minskin Boo. That fourth color can be tough to find, but any deck with Prismatic Ending is going to have three colors pretty easily. There's If you're a spellcaster like me, there, I think there's two real ways to do it. So Brian earlier talked about the issue with trying to destroy it with Hydroblast if it's already resolved. You will take one to six damage. Your opponent can counter it. You can fight back. You'll take another one to six damage. Well, there's two pretty clean ways if you're, you know, a regular spellcaster like me. So the first is Abrupt Decay. Yes, you do get hit once, but you know that that Maddening Hex is getting out of here. And to me, that's pretty valuable. Another way is Besaju Who Endures. I know that people were a lot higher on this card a couple months ago. I still think it's very good. And that doesn't even trigger the Maddening Hex. So if you're at a low life total due to Channeler or Delver, it's just going to cleanly remove it. They could potentially put something like Mystic Sanctuary onto the battlefield because it does give them a basic land type. I have witnessed that happen, but it's an option. Yeah, Besaju and Ottawara, really clean. And Ottawara is temporary, but like if you just need to buy a turn to dump a bunch of stuff out and then make them redeploy their thing from behind, it's, it's much worse from behind. Like Hex is worse from behind is my point here. And Ottawara could buy you the time. Besaju's clean, no questions asked. They're taking the damage. Another thing is that this is an enchantment aura. It enchants the player that it targets. If you can somehow give yourself hexproof or protection from red or something in response to the spell being cast, it will fizzle and die. Uh, it will simply go away because it has no legal targets. Um, there are not a lot of great ways to do that in Legacy that actually get played right now, but a card that came out of Modern Horizons 2 that I've tried a couple times and I wasn't impressed, but I'd be loath not to mention it, Blossoming Calm. One white instant, you gain Hexproof until your next turn, gain two life, and it has rebound. If if there's a lot of like storm in your metagame, uh, this buys you two turns against it. It kind of reads like Veil of Summer uh, against Tendrils, and it also works against Grapeshot which tend which uh veil does not and if burns in your metagame if maddening hex is in your metagame it, it'll also uh just eat up a an uro that's flung at you from minskin boo uh there's there's some stuff that this card does as uro has become less popular in the metagame because jeskai is good against uro then grixis and four color like checkpile start to be good against jeskai because they have discard spells and Blossoming Calming, a uh, Hymn to Tarak or Thoughtseize feels pretty great. And it's a card that is kicking around out there that might might get tipped over the edge a little bit for the enterprising deck builder. For the person who wants the spicy one of that they can brag to their friends about when it has the sick moment. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the Twitter screenshot moment of Blossoming Calming a Maddening Hex. Good luck over there. There's someone I see occasionally at like Star City Games events where they'll go, do you remember in 2012 when I Demir Charmed your Burning Wish? I'm like, no, I don't remember this, but thank you. Like I've been told the story dozens of times over the last decade. I don't actually remember it, but I hear the story somewhat frequently. 
one of my favorite moments of SCG coverage. Uh, Patrick Sullivan, of course, involved. He was doing commentary on my dear friend, Dr. Richard Shea's legacy top eight match. And Rich had one Demir charm in his Grixis control deck. And I had built the deck with Rich and encouraged him not to play that. But Rich is a vintage player and he's old and shrug it pitches to force is a defense for any ridiculous blue one of. And in his top eight coverage, uh, Patrick and, and Cedric were reviewing the list and Patrick said, one Demir charm. Wouldn't want to draw two of those. <laughs> and summed it up perfectly. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that, that like Demir charm, um, you mentioned Brady. He won the one of the 20Ks in, in Columbus this past weekend in Modern, and he had one Warping Whale in a 75 that actually borrowed from me in the car on the drive up there. And that thing went to town. Countered Rhinos, countered Living Ends, counting, countered Indomitable Creativity, put killed Ragavan, put a 1-1 into play that tipped Combat Math to be lethal. Like, all of that happened in the top eight. So, like... Having your spicy one of, there are stories to tell, and Blossoming Calm might end up in that spicy one of territory, but like, ask Brady if he would have won that tournament without that one of Warping Well, He probably wouldn't. So, uh, getting creative. Modern problems require modern solutions. You know how it is. Just thinking outside the box here, the fact that this is an aura that targets a player when it is cast, there is something exploitable there. All right. I think the last thing that I want to say about this card is that I expect people to expect this card out of the Moon Stompy deck, and I don't know how good it actually is there. Um, if you're deep in the weeds on this deck right now, like you know that the mana base is built to cast cards that cost one red and two colorless with a bunch of uh, lands, like specifically like Den of the Bugbear, that aren't particularly good at casting a red red card on turn three. So like, just be aware that this card might not be quite as good as you think it is in that deck if you don't make adjustments to the mana base to compensate for it. It is exactly the sort of effect that you want, but it's not free to just slot it in with no thought. Right, and also that is a deck designed to stop your opponent from casting their spells anymore, it, it, at least in some capacity. Like some, some go all the way in, and some it's just like light stacks to get your damage across, and... This card neither stops your opponent from casting spells. I mean, I guess it does damage, but like not even in a, any sort of guaranteed output. Uh, it, it does nothing to stop Uro from getting in your way or Murktide region from getting in your way. Uh, it doesn't constrict their mana in any way. It doesn't make their spells cost more. Uh, it it doesn't seem like a natural fit in that deck. In addition to all the like castability issues that you just outlined. Yep. This this falls into the pile of like, I would test this card and I wouldn't expect to keep it or maybe would expect it in my sideboard, but the sideboard space for that deck is surprisingly tight. All right. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Scroll Rack. Scroll Rack is a decklist recommendation bot that pulls lists from the pre-existing CEDH decklist database and Budget Brews websites. Kyle Ashbar made this as a tool for his local game store and community as he wanted to make it easier for his friends to build EDH and CEDH decks without having to scour all the databases. Scroll Rack asks its users what budget they have in mind, an archetype and color scheme that they'd like to use, and in return, they get a list of decks to choose from, so please consider checking them out. If you are all over the internet checking Reddit or Twitter, Magic Community has a lot to talk about, right? One of the latest topics 
is actually about Pauper. Initiative versus Monarch. They're somewhat similar abilities, but different. So with Monarch, you become the Monarch, you get a cool crown token, and at the end of every turn, you get to draw a card. Right? Like, it's pretty simple. Initiative's a little bit different. Initiative is somewhat like if you combined Venture into the Dungeon and Monarch in a way. So let's talk about what Initiative actually does. Whenever one or more creatures a player controls deals combat damage to you, that player takes the initiative. Whenever whenever you take the initiative at the beginning of your upkeep, venture into the Undercity. The Undercity is another dungeon. So it is unique to the initiative. You can't go to it using venture into the, the, the dungeon cards. It's unique to the initiative. So the first thing is... Here, let me let me pause you there and just say, like, if you are in the position where you can pull up and look at the Undercity card, I highly encourage you to do so, like, despite the fact that we're an audio medium here. Um, this thing is an absolute mess to kind of walk through. Uh, it is, like, very difficult to narrate all the modes of successfully here. Yes, uh, I I think, it, uh, like, are you going to try this, Bryant? Are you gonna I was try going to, to read them. I was going to read them all. I have them listed. Yeah, I, I guess take a shot at this. Uh, it is a mess, though, because the the path is winding. Like, if you put two plus one plus one counters on your creature in the second room, you can't then create a treasure token because that room is in a different room. Maybe Maybe people should just pull this up. But basically, it's just like a bunch of marginal effects. Um, Here, I, I think I know the best way to do all this. All right, yeah, yeah, Essentially, go for it. if you go down the left side of the dungeon, it is an aggressive side. You can get two plus one plus one counters on a creature. You can burn someone for five life, and you can eventually like draw some cards and maybe get another creature. If you go down the right side, you essentially get some incremental value with scrying, creating treasures, and making a creature. And there's kind of some fo forking paths through through the middle. So essentially, you you kind of have your choice. Am I going to be more aggressive? Am I, am I going to just like want some mana and card selection? Uh, it does a little bit of everything. Exactly. So, but unlike the monarch, you only draw a card after you've ventured the fourth time. So when it enters the battlefield, you take the initiative, you get a lay of the land. That is always the first ability. You get to search your deck for a basic land, put it to your hand and shuffle. You then have to venture three times in order to draw a card. So that's three consecutive turns. So on the fourth turn, you'll get the draw a card. That's very different from Monarch. Because Monarch, you would have drawn four cards, which is really what Pauper plays into. If you think about the format, people love their long board stall games. Think of Orzhov Control, a deck that tries to abuse Monarch. It just runs a ton of removal. They want to make sure you never have any creatures to steal the Monarch. A lot of Poppers like that, where they play to these long board states. And some people even play thinking like, oh, I'm going to deck my opponent. Well, I think that is part of the reason why the initiative is hated so much. People love these long, windy games where they get to feel smart, where the initiative is just going to get you dead. So you play it, and a lot of people are accelerating into these initiative creatures. If you look at them, they're all a little bit costly. They cost four mana, five mana. So they're not exactly fast, but if you play something like Peat Bog or Dark Ritual to accelerate into them, they come down very fast, and then all of a sudden they get two plus one plus one counters. You lose five life, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm at eight and it's turn four out of a deck that's supposed to be slow. And it's since they're mono black, they could have additional reach in their deck somehow via Grey Merchant or Choking Sands or a number of different cards. So I think 
people don't like that their opponents are deciding that the game is about something else, if that makes sense. So I know you're you're like focusing on Popper here, but like there are legacy playable versions of the initiative as well. Um, Caves of Chaos Adventurer is three and a red for a five three trampler that gives you the initiative. It's got some other text, too. But like for our purposes here, like you play a five three the first time it attacks, it is attacking for seven. Your next initiative is five life. So you've, you've attacked for seven, 14, you drain five. That's 19 total damage. And if you open on like a double Simeon Spirit Guide hand or something like that, like this can happen on turn three. Your opponent can just be dead from this singular card. It is incredibly aggressive. Ramping into the initiative cards is one of the best way to abuse them. I just want to reiterate that. So I recorded a popper video this morning. In the once again, in the Patreon pre show, I talked about how much I loved one of the cards I played with, but I actually faced two different in initiative decks. I faced a mono black one, and then I faced a green ramp deck, and they both abused it differently, but the cards out of it were just as scary, uh, just because it does clock you very quickly. And you think of ramp decks as a slow deck, but then all of a sudden you're at a very low life total on turn four. So I think it's actually a good thing. And in, in a previous episode, we talked about how great it was that mono red prowess was changing Popper because it meant that being an aggro deck had meaning. I think that this is the same thing. Your format having different options instead of being forced to play the value game is really, really important. Yeah, and like I really like the options here. So imagine your opponent answers your creature that you played the initiative with, but they can't take the initiative back immediately. You just get to go down the right side, and a couple turns later, like you still get a 4-1 black skeleton with menace. And then maybe also another creature that gets three plus one plus one counters on it afterwards. Like, it is a huge amount of incremental value. Now, there is an assumption here. Like, the assumption is that you can either keep the initiative or take it back on most turns. Similarly to Monarch, if you lose the initiative and your opponent holds it, you're probably going to have a bad time. Phil, I just learned right now, this very second, that there's a bottom room to the initiative that I have not seen yet. Oh, Throne uh, of the yeah, Dead 3. Fun. Reveal the top 10 cards of your library. Put a creature card from among them onto the battlefield with 3 plus 1 plus 1 counters on it. It gains hexproof until your next turn. Then shuffle. What? That is bananas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you get rewarded. I mean, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. You have to trigger the initiative 5 times before you get this. And a lot of constructed games don't even always last that long, especially since we're talking about putting two counters on a creature, then lava axing your opponent and then drawing a card. Uh, the fact you haven't seen this end game yet or this this final room yet probably indicates the strength of the decks that these things are in and the, the role that they take. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, you get paid for your time if you if you survive the dungeon for sure. I think one of the cute things about this is like, the, the, the first one, the secret entrance that lets you get the land, often makes up for the fast mana that you use to ramp out one of these things. So, like, you go in with a Chrome Mox or a Simeon Spirit Guide or a Dark Ritual or whatever to fuel out one of these cards, and then you immediately get the land drop so that you can continue to play spells so that, like, you haven't just fully gone all in on this creature. And I I like that a lot. And I I think this is in many ways better than the monarch from design perspective like i'd rather draw a card than choose one of these like silly rooms to go into but the 
from at least from like the design perspective of like how it affects the format, drawing a card just means you build your deck to do this and then keep it. And every card in your deck either creates the monarch or keeps the monarch. And you just get more ability to do that every time the monarch triggers. Where the Undercity put two plus one counters on a creature or scry two. Like neither of those, I guess making your creature bigger if you're trying to block and keep the Undercity. But like this is a different thing that rewards your deck for wanting to do this thing at least a little bit. There's some generic ones like scry two, make a treasure, whatever, but you're you're not going to be sad about. But this, those are all worse than draw a card from like a deck building perspective where they at least reward different things. They reward more specific things. And I've won a lot of games and lost a lot of games by just someone becoming the monarch and drawing more cards that their deck already wants to be doing. And it snowballs quickly. And this snowballs too, but in a way that feels more interesting, at least to me. I would agree 100%. I like this a lot better because the games fucking end. Like... Games involving the Monarch are often, like, basically over after about three turns. Like, that opponent has buried you in cards, but you're not technically dead, so you kind of keep playing, and you're just kind of in this, like, miserable void of, like, well, maybe if I just draw this and they don't have that or that, I can wiggle my way out. Whereas with the Undercity, like, one way or another, like, someone is doing something gross with the tail end of this card after a couple of turns. I mentioned yes. how the last dungeon room is broken. That means that you would have drawn five cards off the Monarch. Are you like the people that are upset about this? Are you upset when your opponent draws five cards off Monarch? Probably. But which one of them's worse? I'd rather my opponent go all the way through the Undercity than draw five. What every single time. Yeah, I mean, I must cultivate my feed differently than you or I just don't go on Reddit. I haven't seen anyone like mad that the the undercity is ruining popper i believe they're out there because i know how magic players are but uh the discourse i've seen is from like uh from spikes who are just like i don't know what the initiative is and i'm not gonna read it if you play in uh will kruger made a joke tweet where he was like if an opponent plays a initiative card against me i'll simply turn it face down and the edh and popper communities went ape on him it, it's actually kind of insane the the depravity of the average twitter user coming after someone for for that uh, i haven't seen any takes that this is bad for popper i've seen takes that it changes popper uh like i follow like alex allman and andrea mangucci who are like excited about this and and like it i i am not following you know cave dweller who is mad that a new thing exists I, in general, I'm just a fan of things that speed popper up just because I think that the games that are defined by slow card advantage and crew lands and divinations aren't nearly as interesting as when the format has some range. I guess, I don't know. That's why I figured it was worth mentioning. Yeah, I agree completely. Big fan. So I'm I'm interested to see how much impact this mechanic does have in formats beyond popper. Because, like, White Plume Adventurer, for example, is two colorless and one white to take the initiative. And, like, it's a 3-3 that has a little bit of other text that's basically flavor text. But, like, two colorless and a white is Ancient Tomb plus, like, Chromox or one other land, right? So, I don't know, maybe that's playable. The Caves of Chaos Adventurer, the three colorless and a red one, is a very aggressive clock. But, again, like... 
the the current moon stompy deck lists are built to cast things that caught two colorless and one red so that's a different deck um there's actually a japanese deck list out there that like plays this and anji's ravager fable of the mirror breaker and is like trying to do all of these various things that grind card advantage rather than just killing the opponents as quickly as possible um so if you end up wanting to mess around with this card um that list should be easy to find i think it's both on mtg uh goldfish and mtg top eight i just looked up the pauper legal initiative cards because i was curious what the cheapest one costs because the ones that i have seen were both four mana four mana is the actual cheapest that it exists at and they are both three generic and then one is three generic and a black and the other is three generic and a blue there's a green one, which is the color of ramp that was actually bumped up to five mana. So these cards are not cheap. If you're losing to four or five drops, I think that is within the appropriate power level of the format. Right. A five drop that then sets a thing in motion that if you do not attack with a creature will do something uh, big five turns from now. I, I agree. Like this, I, I kind of like that the initiative kind of smears Monarch decks. Like the monarch decks are trying to slow everything down, and the initiative decks are trying to speed it up, and I I like that. I'm a fan. What if all the rummage or not rummage, but like rambling on Twitter is monarch players just being very upset that they're losing to the initiative? What if that's the whole theory behind this? Oh God, it's scary. Like I I faced down turn one caves of chaos adventure, and I was just like, oh shit shit like what on earth am i supposed to do here i don't have a removal spell in my hand like i'm taking 14 i'm in trouble yep the game is over <laughs> good luck phil did you happen to read that one caves of chaos adventure correct no i'll I'll, re- I'll read the full text all right so it's three colorless and a red for a five three human barbarian trampler it takes the initiative when it etbs and it does have more text okay whenever it attacks exile the top card of your library If you've completed a dungeon, you may play that card this turn without paying its mana cost. Otherwise, you may play that card this turn. Does the initiative dungeon count? Yes, that is a dungeon. Okay, I just want to make sure. So this is like, say you're using like your spirit guides and chrome moxen to fuel this thing out. Like it can then help you make your land drops or find more mana or whatever to kind of continue going and potentially find more threats as well. Uh, I don't imagine that you're ever going to complete that dungeon in Legacy without killing your opponent. So, like, I think part of that is flavor text, uh, at least for our purposes. It sounds like a video title, Phil. Challenge uh, right now. I, I got to say, though, like, from the the blue, the blue white, the Tundra Gamer side of the, the red stompy matchup, sometimes it really is that, like, come on, swords to plowshares. Oh, thank God I found it. And then you just chill for a while. And the initiative keeps chunking where like, like if, if you cast, like, obviously this costs more mana than rabble master. So it should be more powerful, but like, sometimes I'll answer rabble master after two triggers. My life total is low, but there's two one ones in play and I'll figure that out later. Pushing through the, the dungeon, like seeing more cards, lava axing me flipping a creature out of the top 10 cards of your deck. That's way more scary than leaving the two little dinguses behind off of a rabble master when I found, found that emergency plow at the last possible moment. So I can see games where this totally does trigger. I don't know that it'll still be around to cast the spell for free, but the next one might be. All right. Do we have any final thoughts? We kind of want to share about any of the stuff we've talked about tonight or any other recently released cards. Do not register maddening hacks. 
Yeah, I heard Register that Register null rod instead, folks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, somehow that's probably better. Uh, though Bryant is uh, cutting ponders for more artifacts in his, his storm deck, so maybe null rod is better. Um, I just want to say how nice it is that Magic Online reflects reality again, because that was the longest period of actual format disparity that I think we've had. Like, has it ever happened before where multiple cards across multiple formats that were actually format changing and like format relevant were just not around? Not that I can think of, but I do know that a lot of CDH play. I, this is a slightly different topic, but they're upset that the card sacrifice isn't online. And I feel like that would make so many CDH players happy because then they could play their decks online where they currently don't function quite the same in paper. So I feel like that's a really easy thing to just add and would make a bunch of people happy. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. In, in like the ADH world, I know there's some, some stuff on the fringes that does not exist. Uh, but as far as like supported 60 card tournament formats, oh, we were just in actually different worlds, different metagames for, for months. That was pretty crazy. I hope that doesn't happen again. I hope wizards gets their shit together and realizes that like make it work for arena and everything else is secondary it is, is not good. I, and I will say like, Shoutouts to like Watsi and the new company that is taking over like running Magic Online. Like they are doing a good job of fixing some issues, um, not just in terms of like card availability, but also like cutting down on uh, like the intentional trophy farming that that people do trying to get like five O's. Um, but, like they've removed the join button, like the confirm so that like people can't just like bot farm anymore, uh, which is really nice. Brian is a run and six gamer, so he's probably experienced this a lot more often than I have. But I was playing a recording modern and my opponent ultimated the run token or ultimated run got the emblem. And if you're unfamiliar, if you have graveyards popped out, the emblem will start flickering, literally flickering. And then if you close your graveyard, it will stop, but you can't ever expand your graveyard open or you're unable to take any actions. I had to oh, experience no. this the other day and I just like literally couldn't get through it and conceded the game instead. I was like, I'd probably lose anyway, but like, I'm just not going to deal with this. It's been over a year of this happening. And when it happened to me again the other day, I was just like, they haven't fixed this yet. How? Weird. Bummer. Uh, though the the patch uh, apparently also had Moxus putting goblins into play tapped. And I think they fixed that like in a day or two because Eli tweeted that it's not working. And then he tweeted out some five O's and stuff like since then. So it looks like they fixed some stuff quickly, but the flickering red and six, I guess you're out of luck. Any other final thoughts, gentlemen? Nah, let's wrap it up. Welcome to all the new cards, magic online and everybody good luck out there. Pack your hydroblasts.